Hello, my corona-free friends. Solo show time, but this is a special, special show. My last show I told you about, uh, I'm going to give you some Netflix reviews. Well, this Netflix review has to do with one of my favorite documentaries. I cannot describe to you how great this documentary is. I cannot do it. Because I can't do it alone, I'm going to bring the guy who was accused of murder onto this show. Let me set this up before Juan Catalan comes on the show. Juan Catalan, at 24 years old, was accused of murder, murdering his 16-year-old Martha Puebla. The night of the murder, May 12th, 2003, Juan happened to be at a Dodger game with his six-year-old daughter and two of his buddies. He comes home that night, like any other night from the game. Dodgers played the Braves that night, and it was, a, it was another game. It was another day. It was another night. He had no idea about the murder that happened. The murder took place at around 10.30 that night. He drove back from Dodger Stadium around 9.50. So there's a gap there between 9.50 and 10.30. Where was Juan? Juan was on his way home, like I mentioned. On August 12th, 2003, exactly three months to the day, Juan is driving to work and four or five unmarked cars pin him to the curb, ask him to get down with guns in his face. Now, I don't want to give up everything here because I want Juan to kind of play by play this thing for us. I'm going to try to ask the proper questions to do that for you. But this is the most, I'm telling you, it's the most astonishing thing ever because there was a film being recorded at the game that night. Larry David's Curb Your Enthusiasm was being recorded that night. And there was a scene at Dodger Stadium. And the only way that they can prove that Juan was at the Dodger game that night was to somehow find this footage. Let's bring him in. And here he is, Juan Catalan. Juan, you were arrested exactly three months after the murder on August 12th, 2003. Can you take me through that day? Yeah, sure thing, Mike. I woke up, had to get ready for work. I didn't have a car at the time. So I asked uh, my girlfriend if she could drop me off on the, on her way home that morning. So the night before, as we were driving to work, you know, I was telling her about this weird dream that I had. There was like UFOs and I remember like, you know, seeing aliens and stuff that I was being taken away. And it was just really weird. So, you know, the drive from my house to our family shop, it wasn't uh, very far at all. You know, it was probably about maybe five, seven minutes. So during this that five, seven minute drive, I was telling Alma about the, my weird dream as we were pulling into the uh, driveway there at work I had noticed once she had parked in our parking spot you know I had seen a car cut us off and it wasn't just a regular cut off it was just a, you know like on purpose and you know very I thought disrespectful so as I looked into the mirror I was in the passenger seat and I remember looking into the into the, the passenger mirror and I looked and I go who the hell is cutting us off like this I mean it was about what seven in the morning and I remember I opened the door, and as soon as I opened the door, the guy jumped out of his, um, it was like a mini mid-SUV. And, uh, man, before I could, you know, say anything, you know, the guy, I was, I already had a, a gun pointed at me. You know, within a matter of seconds, I was completely surrounded. You know, their tactics of yelling and, you know, trying to disorient the, you know, the um, the person, it, it definitely worked. Because, you know, I, I had no idea what was going on. And, you know, I was just ordered, you know, they were yelling for me to get on the ground. We also had my um, five-year-old daughter in the car. You know, at that time, you know, that made me really angry because, you know, all this is going on. You know, they got guns drawn at me. And, uh, you know, my girlfriend is, you know, she's freaking out. And then, you know, we were like in a complex of different units. 
So all our neighbors, you know, from all the commotion, they start coming out. And, you know, people that we've known for years, you know, they're staring at me like, man, you know, what is that? What did Juan do? And, um, you know, I remember my dad poked his head out and, you know, right away they yelled at him to get back inside. And, you know, I also remember that they had a um, a sketch, a drawing of, of my picture, like my ID picture. And, you know, they're just telling each other, yeah, this is him. We got him. And I was just like, what the hell is going on? So they picked me up. They uh, put me back in one of their cars. And mind you, there was no... They had no police officer uniforms, nothing. Like, I had no idea that there were, you know, whatever type of uh, law enforcement. I mean, I thought I was literally, you know, going to be dead because when I seen this guy, you know, pointing guns at me and then all of a sudden I'm surrounded, you know, I was like, man, like the last thing I thought of was this is the cops. So none of them, so nobody was in uniform. It was basically undercover LAPD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like a a squad. I don't know what type Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. who these guys are, but. You know, they put me in the back of their car. They take me down to the uh, police station where they put me into a holding tank in the North Hollywood uh, police station, which, you know, they threw me back there. And I was back there, man, for like literally like six hours before I was even told what was going on. Now, your family owns a machine shop? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, how, how long were you working for your dad? My dad started the business in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so this was 2003. I mean, we had uh, what, about 13 years. And how old were you at the time? I was uh, 25 at the time. I'm sorry, 24. Now, you've been arrested in the past, right? Uh, Yes. For what? Just knucklehead, you know, juvenile stuff. I, you know, breaking into cars, you know, just just being an idiot pretty much. You know, I just, I started probably mid-teens. You know, I stopped paying attention to school and, you know, thought I was, you know, cool and, you know, started hanging with the wrong crowd, so... You know, I started picking up bad habits. You know, my brother saw he was making, you know, a lot of fast money and, you know, wanted to also, you know, make some money too. So it ended up being that, you know, it was um, stolen car parts. So, you know, that was, you know, me just being, like I said, you know, stupid. Do you think that your past stemmed the department to think that you were then the accuser because of your past? You know what? I think they try to use that, mm-hmm. but ultimately they didn't work because there was no violent uh, behavior there, I think, you know, in my opinion, you know, thank God. So, yeah, but, you know, definitely, they will definitely use that against uh, you if they can. You know, it makes the, the person, you know, being charged with whatever crime just makes them look worse or, you know, whatever they want to use to their advantage. Mm-hmm. An interview you've done in the past, you mentioned that you felt this was meant to be. What did you mean by that? Uh, meant to be as in what do you you, um, you mentioned like things are always meant to be and you said that you felt like this whole situation was meant to be well i do i do you know now looking you know back on things because you know at the time you know i was just you know how do you say you know just existing i wasn't doing anything Mm -hmm. productive i was just you know i remember i was you know smoking weed and you know i wasn't you know too motivated i wasn't you know just you know, just, you know, passing the days, you know, I didn't, you know, think of a future, of a bright future or anything like that as far as, you know, getting ahead, you know, and it wasn't until, you know, my daughters were born that I started trying to just shift that attitude because, you know, I wanted to be a, a good uh, positive role model for them. So, you know, little by little, I started distancing myself from what I thought were my bad habits and I wanted to be more of a father figure to them to just, you know, lead them and you know guide them as best i could you mentioned that you were in holding for six hours prior to you even knowing why the hell you were arrested right 
Yes. Were you then in jail for a few months after when this when this whole case was happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was in jail for six months. Mm-hmm. I spent like half time in downtown Men Central Jail and half time up in uh, Wayside, which is uh, Pitch's de- detention center. I don't know if they changed the name now, but up there by uh, Valencia Magic Mountain area. Some people say this coronavirus is like living in jail. What do you have to tell them? You know what? I have actually had that conversation in, in the last few days that, you know, everyone is stressing out about, you know, being isolated and everything. But, you know, someone that's been in jail, you know, it's really, it's almost a bit the same thing, you know, it's just, but you have Wi-Fi, <laughs> you have a TV, <laughs> and you have, you know, a refrigerator, you got snacks and ice cream, you know, whatever you want. But And like you, you said, know, and like you said, Coca-Cola, right? Yeah, Coca-Cola, man. You know, you want to have a nice Coke, you know, in jail, you don't get any of that and stuff, you're, you're surrounded you with some good people man compared to what you were in jail exactly man you know i don't discriminate food nowadays i mean yeah. you know once you have jail food man you you'll never you know waste any food again trust me so Juan, there was one witness right yes okay so one that sole eyewitness so that one witness told the lapd you were the accuser yeah man it was just it was a bunch of you know shady stuff going on this guy you know, at one point, I found out through my attorney that, you know, LAPD, they, they were accusing him, that one witness, of him being the, the shooter, mm-hmm. of him being the murderer, wow. because he didn't, you know, know what to say. The guy was, you know, he was a Mexican guy. He didn't, you know, English was a second language. So, you know, he didn't, you know, he didn't even speak the language well. So there was a point in time that they were accusing him of being the killer through the amazing detective work that Todd, my attorney, did. You know, he found this out. And even there was a recording, you know, that they messed up in the fact that that right before they were interrogating him, when they hit play, you know, they had just they were telling him, hey, OK, let's um, let's go over this just like we talked about. And, you know, Todd was like, what? What do you mean? Just like you talked about. And that was when he was, you know, um, saying on tape that I was the shooter. It was tough, man, to to swallow that, you know, knowing that, you know, first you're innocent, first of all. And then second, you know, you got corrupt cops that, you know, are trying to, you know, pin evidence that's not there and witnesses that, I mean, it was impossible, man. I was in there, you know, stressing and, you know, I I remember just saying to myself, you know, this is impossible. It it can't be. Yeah. When you hear a story like this, the system is really scary because you're completely innocent and now you have to prove that you're innocent, that you didn't kill somebody. That's scary, man. Dude. Dude beyond words man it's not the you know the saying of you know innocent to proving guilty no man it's you're guilty until you prove you're innocent mm-hmm. did you ever find out who the so-called witness was i saw him in court yeah oh. i saw the we were eye to eye in court and you know the district attorney asked him do you you know see the shooter or do you know who the shooter was yes is he here in court yes can you point him out to us and the guy points at me mm. And I remember looking at him and, you know, I couldn't say a word, man. I wanted to yell. I wanted to, you know, but in my mind, I was just looking at this guy and I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Like, man, I couldn't, I can't get, I couldn't get over that, man. But did you ever meet this guy guy in the past? Did you have a pass with this guy? Do you even know? Oh, no. You don't know who it is. Never, never whatsoever, man. Now, I've never seen that guy in my life. The murder happened close to your house, right? In the valley? Yeah, man, that. That was the craziest part. Yeah. yeah. Out of all places, you know, out of where, anywhere there in L.A., it happened about five blocks away from where where we grew up. 
and a gang killed yeah. and a gang killed this poor girl, right? That's the story. That's the way the story goes. Yes. And there's four. There was four guys who got caught. Uh huh. The LAPD was so incompetent that they had to be removed from the case, and they brought in the FBI, which solved the case. Mm. Did they get the death penalty? These guys? I'm not sure. I'm not sure on that. It's amazing that you know if they charged you with this murder, they would have never found those guys. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, could you imagine that? I, I, I mean, wonder just, uh, I wonder if that witness had a connection with that gang, maybe. Did anybody think about that? No. Okay. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Like I said, this guy was like a uh, a paisa, you know, he was just a, you know, I, mean, I don't know, he was just trying to, you know, get a piece of tail from, you know, this this the poor girl that was murdered. There were, you know, some type of friends. I don't know if they were intimate friends, but you know, he ends up being the guy there when, you know, the girl gets shot. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's a star witness and, you know, they they were accusing him at one point. After you got off, you then sued the LAPD for 300 Well, I think you settled for $320,000, right? What was the original amount that you were suing for? Yeah, no, man. We, you know, take that like almost took, took it as a loss. You know, that, that case was, I was told from my attorney was supposed to be, you know, you know, somewhat in the million dollars mm-hmm. plus range. But, you know, again, through court proceedings, they, the judge, I remember, ruled that the LAPD, you know, get this, you know, you know that they arrested me in good faith, <laughs> no wrongdoing. And I had to pretty much settle for that amount, the 300 20 or basically lose the case now this documentary was emmy nominated right yes it was who approached you guys to make the documentary the guy's name is uh jacob lamandola he is from new york and you know a few years back uh todd you know at this point you know he was uh every time I, he was calling me we became good friends, really good friends after this case, which was amazing. You know, he's one of my best friends today. And every time he called me, it was almost like, guess what? You know, so-and-so, you know, wants to do an interview and so-and-so, you know, they want to, you know, talk to you and so-and-so and on and on and on. So this particular case, you know, he calls me. I remember it was like on a weekend, Saturday, I believe. He's like, hey, uh, listen, I just got an interesting email. And I go, yeah, what is it about? And he said that it was from a a graduate uh, filmmaker from NYU, and he was interested in speaking to us about doing a documentary on the case. That He was a big fan. He's followed it ever since it came out, had all the news clippings and everything, and uh, he wanted to fly out from New York and meet us. And yeah, he we agreed. He came out. We spent the weekend together, and you know he was just blown away. And he went back to New York, spoke to his team, and yeah, and the rest was history. Yeah, what a job he did, man. One of my favorite documentaries. At the time, you had uh, two daughters. You've now grown the family with a son. Congratulations. How are the daughters and the rest of the family doing? Thank you. Everyone's doing well. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate that. Thank you for asking. Um, my daughter that was with me at the game, Alyssa, she is now 22 years old. Jeez. She was six at the time. Yeah, wow. she's in college. She's about to go to the university. I can't tell you how proud I am mm-hmm. of my kids. You know, God bless me with uh, three great kids. My second daughter is in junior college also. And then my nine-year-old son, who's a uh, guy's a, he's a spark of our family, man. He's a, he's a big kid and he loves basketball, just like me. And when all this uh, Kobe stuff happened, you know, he was actually born on Kobe's birthday. And his middle name is Kobe. Mm. We had a name Kobe. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, 
this would he would have never been born had I been sent up to San Quentin to death row and all that. So as a, another another uh, gift from God, as I take it. Unbelievable, man! I, ju- I got the chills thinking about your daughter. Uh, just just thinking about her on the on the witness stand there and telling you know telling everybody what what that day was like at the Dodger game and and now hearing she's 22 years old going to university you you should be really proud congratulations man that is awesome yeah thank you man thank you Juan how often do you think about this scenario and everything lining up that day from the get-go of even attending the Dodger game that night to finding your stud attorney to curb your enthusiasm not only filming at the stadium that night but in your section to the cell sites around the stadium to one of the PA's uh, work working with HBO that allowed you to walk down the aisle and because of it you were caught on camera without all of these stars lining up it's more than likely you would have gotten the death penalty dude it's been 17 years has this sunken in yet man you, just listening to you man is giving me uh, goosebumps man Mike, it just you know at the time when all this was happening you know all I saw was you know darkness and you know just nothing but negativity in there i just wanted to you know prove my innocence i wanted to get out you know be with my family you know resume my life and you know for the first few years after i was out i'll tell you you know i i blocked everything out i was just so happy and grateful that to be out free with my family i had a period of like like major like uh, depression and anxiety and all that just i call it like post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. disorder that you know it kicked in and man it was a it was a rough time and you know for a while i couldn't speak about this like the whole situation my story and all that and you know you know throughout the years you know i've just been amazed on how people you know gravitate towards my story and just as you mentioned all the everything that had to happen just you know for me to prove my innocence it blows me away and every time i think about it now it just it just it boggles my mind to think that that was no coincidence. And even though, oh man, if I describe to you my life story since I was a kid and, you know, it would all make sense coming up to this point because I've been in trouble before, not with the law, but in other parts of life, there's always been someone there watching over me and it's been God, you know, I have no other explanation than God Almighty watching over me. You know, these guys wanted to bury me. The LAPD thought, you know, they were just going to put me away and, you know, close their case. And God said otherwise, you know, I'm here for a reason. I've been asked usually the same questions, but, you know, I remember a, uh, we did a court TV. I don't know if you remember court TV, remember back in the days? Yeah. And we did an interview. We did a round. We got uh, flown out to Good Morning America in New York. And we did, you know, the Today Show and ESPN and all these interviews. And the last interview of the day there in New York, first time, it was my first time ever in New York. I had never been in New York. And we did a court TV. It was a uh, interview with Kathleen Cryer. She's like an ex-judge. And I'll always remember what she asked. She told me, she said at the end of the interview, she's like, well, you know, Juan, she goes, it seems like you have some very important things left to do here on earth. And that blew me away because I had never thought about that. No one had ever told me that. The way I look at life now is just in such an appreciation, such gratitude. You know, I've been invited to go speak to kids at schools, which, you know, it feels so good to to um, talk to these kids and, you know, just talk to them about life and, you know, paying attention in school and, you know, being, you know, just good people and, you know, being, you know, good to their parents and you got to work hard, you know, you know, before 
you know, you have any types of success. And, you know, I definitely feel like I have purpose now. And it's a beautiful thing, Mike. Good for you, man. God bless you, man. You're a good dude. And like you, you said early on in the show, without everything is meant to be. And without this, without this, God was giving you that that reason, right? And without this, you wouldn't have been the man you are today, period. No, I wouldn't have. I, without a doubt, I would not have. Uh, before you go, I've got one bone to pick with you, man. I was on your Instagram, and I noticed that uh, you're a big L.A. Dodger fan, Laker fan, but then I noticed you're a 49er fan, and that, that, that bothers me because you're rooting, you're rooting with the same people that root for the Giants, the San Francisco Giants. How do you do that? <laughs> hey, man, take it easy, man. Don't judge me. I was... I was ten, I was ten years old, man, when I was when I picked the 49ers as my football team. So uh, I just remember first football game I ever watched, man, 1989, which was the 1988 Super Bowl, man, with the 49ers, bro. Once I saw Joe Montana and Jerry Rice, forget about it, man. <sighs> so when they when yeah. okay, so tell me what happens when you hear the beat LA chant when you're in San oh, Francisco. You, what what do you? What, I was just gonna yeah. I was just gonna tell you that. Yeah. It just it, it throws me off completely. <laughs> I'm like staring at everyone and I'm like, all right, let's cut that out. Let's cut that out. Do, do you ever wear your Dodger hat when you're wearing your San Francisco 49er jersey? I do. I have a red LA hat. Oh so it goes God. with the 49ers. You're so you know, people me, look at me Yeah, people look at me sideways like, "What?" Yeah, but But yeah, man, huge 49ers fan, man. Killing me. And even back then, the Rams and the Raiders were here, but still, right? They both sucked probably at the time in 89. Yeah, they both, exactly. I didn't know my cousins who were huge football fans at the time. I only liked uh, basketball and baseball. Mm. So when they're like, hey, let's watch the Super Bowl, and I'm like, the Super Bowl? You know, football championship. And man, when I saw Joe Montana, I was like, wow. Yeah. Jerry Rice, wow! Like you know, I wish I can tell you I'll let you go with a pass, but I can't, dude. I still can't. There's no way. I just, I just can't. It's, it's all right, man. At ten years old, you don't know, uh, you know who's, uh, you know who's your arch nemesis. So, well, at least you're a loyal and committed fan. So I'll give you that. Well, let's beat this damn virus that's going around. Let's get back to our lives, but most importantly, baseball, so we can meet up to the stadium and uh, and beers on me, man. <laughs> definitely man hey, you're it. on man i had tickets for opening day already man i'm so bummed out it was actually uh this thursday yeah it's in two, the opening day was in two days i know man it's the worst it's the absolute worst but uh we'll get we'll get there we'll get through this we'll yeah, get there yeah, we'll get there yeah yep, god willing man the documentary is called the long shot and i've i've seen it four times uh i it's only 40 minutes too it's not some long dragged out documentary uh, I, it is so good. I promise you, uh, you guys have to check that out. It is on Netflix right now. It's called the long shot on Netflix. That was 17 years ago. And it's, I, I got chills, man, thinking about his daughter sitting at the stand and trying to describe that night. And one thing we didn't mention in the interview was crazy, man. When he, his daughter asked him to go if they can have ice cream. So they went out to get ice cream. And when they were coming back, one of the assistants from HBO told him, because Larry David is filming in his aisle. He's filming in his aisle. Do you know how many aisles there are at Dodger Stadium? There's 56,000 there's 56, capacity at that stadium. For Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm to pick that aisle is just crazy. Like like Juan said, he's God's watching over him, man. There is no doubt about it. But Going back to the assistant of HBO, he wasn't letting anybody in that aisle at the time. 
because Larry David was filming. And he just happened to look at Juan and his daughter and he says, oh, you guys can, can go ahead. And he let them through. And as he let them through, the camera caught Juan on video. And that was their proof to say Juan was at the game. So uh, Larry David wasn't happy about it, by the way. He got pissed at the assistant that he let them through. But now Larry is Larry David is actually in the documentary as well. And uh, yeah, it was freaking so cool, man. It's so cool. I love that. I love that documentary so much. And the, the, one of my favorite parts in the documentary is you hear Vin Scully's voice too. This is back in 2003. And you see Eric Gagne and, and all the old Dodgers. And that part of it is really cool too. Kind of takes you back. But just hearing Vin's voice, you and, and the documentary starts with Vin's voice. And that alone kind of gives me goosebumps too. So uh, listen, uh, this coronavirus thing that's happening, uh, I think we should all obviously be careful. But uh, I wanted to give you, I've got a lot of products that I use, a lot of products. If it's with you know my hair, my face, uh, stuff that I eat, drink, whatever. I have a lot of products. And what I'm going to do on these solo shows is kind of introduce you to the products that I use to help you out and hopefully change your life as it has mine the last few years. And this product is called, well, this product is made by Suja. It's an immunity defense shot. And I take it this time of year because it's flu season. And I take a shot every day, at least Monday through Friday I do. And there's no doubt it helps immune system. It's got ginger, turmeric, orange juice, lemon juice, and black pepper. It's got a couple other things, but it's all organic. It's like three bucks a shot at Vons. What I usually do is they have like a little display box that's on the uh, shelf. I just grab the whole damn display. There's like 20 of them in there. I just freaking grab that thing. Everybody looks at me, but I don't really care. I'm not going to grab one or two of them and then I got to go back in two days. I just grab the whole damn thing. I'm like 20 bottles deep and I just freaking grab it. And then when there's, there's sometimes there's a box behind it. I'll just grab that too. It's not even open. Like the perforation, you're supposed to perforate it and like open it. <laughs> Things that I just grab the box. <laughs> I just grab the box, man. I got 40, 40 deep, man. I'm like good for a month and a half or whatever. Check it out. It's good stuff. Uh, you have to take these ginger shots. It's good for your immune system. It's very good for it. It blocks out bad stuff and it helps you to make sure that you don't get sick. It's very important. This was Miked Up Pod. And make sure you follow my Instagram page at Miked Up Pod. I am Mike Gabriel. Until next time, folks. No wasted days. Let's go.